0: Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Do you brief history of power? Dr. Kuntz. Uh, ben writes in and he is, uh, he's got a great introduction for us to the controversy that is all the rage uh, if you happen to be online in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and care about its theological well being. Um, unless, of course, you don't care that much about this, but a lot of people do right now. He, he says this He says, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure I don't need to ask this, but would you both throw in your two cents on a recent the recent LCMS large catechism controversy. Perhaps you'd simply like to refer to others who have talked about it. All I know is that it's frustrating to me because it has either caused or further revealed political divisions among us in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Several notable people on Twitter, who I believe are friends of The Mad Christian, raised concerns about it, contributing in part to Pastor President Harrison halting the production of the volume. But now that the production has continued without alteration, many on Lutheran Twitter are praising the action, while others are continuing to rage about it. He could write for like New York Times. See, this is really good, as um, so he like lays it out.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, the sentences are really well balanced. They, yeah, they're nice. Good job, Ben. Yeah.
0: Um, from my perspective, ever since I've sat at the feet of Fisk, Wolfmuller, and Wilkin, I've been more and more eager to think and talk about the small and large catechisms and the other confessions. But apparently, we Lutherans can't do that. We just have to be at each other's throats over some essays that have been attached and be stupid and stubborn. As I said, it's frustrating and very disheartening. I look forward to both of your thoughts on the matter. In Christ, Ben, a layman and organist who's trying to go through the Concordia large catechism with some men on church at Saturday on Sunday at church on Saturday mornings. There we go. Um, Yeah, I I have to say my emotions are a little bit with, with where he finished there, but I'll let you take first stab at this.
1: The phrase that he used political divisions, I think is revelatory. And I mean, he's seeing it as revealing it's revelatory of the way that these things get processed. So in order to talk about this, I want to separate or at least distinguish the way things get handled from the content that is actually present. So the content that is actually present, and I am sitting here with the large catechism, the annotated large catechism, well, to be clear, in front of me, most of which is, if you have a copy, is, is not Martin Luther's large catechism, which is a confessional document of the Lutheran Church. That was originally a series of sermons that Luther preached on the basic structure of what Lutherans would call the catechism, which appears as either small or large. Most of this volume are what the subtitle of the volume, or maybe it's the full title, would call annotations and especially contemporary applications. And the stuff that was originally called attention to by Ryan Turnipseed, that's his real name, everybody out there. That's his real name.
0: The turnip magnet yeah. is his fake name, if you want to find him on that one. So, yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> people, people are acting like he's not real. I mean, he's real. He's, he's not an Anon. You know, believe um, it or not,
0: like in the last three weeks, I met another turnip seed. I ran into another one.
1: I, I, like that name you exists. Live more than mid, one. You live in the Midwest. I do believe that. I think that yes, his name so is weird
0: myself. But anyway, yeah. So he, <laughs> he, I love the kid. Um, he's got zeal. There's no question he's got intellect. But yeah, got to continue on. He he called attention to this.
1: Yeah, but the stuff that he originally called attention to is not just there. It It isn't actually distorted, which is something that I've found consistently in people's reactions is, have you read this? You're blowing this out of proportion, whatever. The question of proportion is, is kind of up to you and people have very different emotional settings and are online more or less often. But the idea that like the... Essay on the fifth commandment, if I recall correctly, by Joel Bierman, that does not sanction self defense, what quote, violent self defense, or the capital B black, lowercase w white stuff in the Lattimore essay. That's all there. So it's a valid question. And this is going to be a lot of my response. It's a valid question why and should it be there? And is it even true, right? is gentrification in the essay on the Ninth Commandment, maybe Ninth and Tenth by John Nunez. Gentrification is a euphemism for white people moving into a neighborhood. Nobody says that when Mexicans replace blacks in, you know, Compton. So, you know, that stuff is all there. It's, It's not like the stuff about content was just completely off base, which is something that I see happening frequently. People are saying, well, it's not that bad or this is how you understand it or whatever. And it's that response that I'm much more interested in rather than the zeal of young men, which is always present in a healthy group. Mm. It's not always the absolute, the only virtue you could possibly have is to have zeal, but any healthy group that actually believes things is going to have zealous young men. I taught at a seminary, I know, I mean- (laughs) thank god we we have zealous we have yeah we have zealous young men because we actually believe things now all the stuff that i just mentioned the content stuff not really coincidentally at all because of the nature of the threats facing not just the lutheran church missouri synod but facing all christian churches those are all under the ten Commandments. so the lutheran catechism structure for those who are not lutherans is ten commandments creed lord's prayer baptism Office of the Keys or Confession and Absolution, depending on what you want to call that section. Sacrament of the Altar. That's the the basic six-part structure. There's other stuff, but that's the basic structure. And then there are small, there's a small version of that. And then a large version of that. The stuff that is controversial is almost entirely under the commandments. So under the Sixth Commandment, should we say that somebody is burdened by pedophilia? Is that really a good way to talk about pedophilia? No. So... The issue here is that the questions brought up to begin with, largely by zealous young men, men who happen overwhelmingly not to be ordained, right? Those questions were not only valid, they are substantiated as I read the thing myself, okay? So the content, regardless of how you think people should have talked about it or how you think it should have been handled, The content is, it is certainly valid to question it. A lot of it is fine. Some of it's even great. The question is, to to my mind, and this moves in more to discussion of form, not so much content. I don't really think it's debatable that there's debatable stuff in there. I haven't even talked about, you know, why did they pick this author and not that, why ELCA author, why female author when we have men who teach by virtue of their vocation as pastors, whatever, right? Those are things. I mean, I'm not trying to give like the the totally shut down comprehensive answer because I like that people are discussing theology anywhere. (laughs) In person on Saturday morning or online, I like that. And that gets into the question of form. And I'm not so much interested in the form of zealous young men because it will always be what it is. Okay. Okay. The question is always, especially if you are a pastor, that's why I mentioned that these guys are almost entirely, if not entirely, not pastors. If you are a pastor, how do you handle questions personally? And so then too, on a corporate level, how do we handle division or confusion or even just questions? I think the way that this often gets handled, maybe on an individual level, for pastors, but it's certainly, I mean, this is the way that questions that people had about COVID were often handled. You'll notice that this is even the way that if you go farther back in our church's history and you talk about the battle for the Bible, people will talk about it in these terms. Who had the authority to do what? And how did person A talk about person B? Everything swirls almost naturally around how the fourth commandment was applied, honor thy father and thy mother, and then how the eighth commandment was applied in the given situation. Even when, and this occurred to me as I was thinking about this this morning, even when the issue is explicitly about, like, not just another commandment, but as it were, a higher ranking commandment. So we had a big controversy in our church body, much bigger and more consequential than probably a publication will be. I don't know, only time will tell. But when we had the controversy after the September 11th attacks on the United States over prayer and public prayer and whether District President David Benke should have prayed at Yankee Stadium in the fall of 2001, that's kind of explicitly about the First and Second Commandment. Like, if you just want to arrange your life in terms of the catechism, which can be a helpfully clarifying way to do things, that was explicitly and Primarily, it was about other things too, but it was primarily about the first and second commandment. If you're just thinking in terms of the theology that we teach people to believe, okay, so who is the only true God? And then how do I handle the honoring of his name and the dishonoring of the names of false gods? Because those are both entailed in the second commandment. If I honor the only true God, then I have to dishonor those as Elijah does when he makes fun of Baal those who are not true gods and how do I do that in this context and blah blah blah. And that all kind of devolved into a who had authorization to do what question. That is not, I think, just a function of like bureaucracy. Like
0: Can I just this jump, is what this, just, just who had authorization go ahead. to yeah, do go what for it. not only in terms of like public kindness, gentleness, or anything like that, who had authorization down to the nitty-gritty details of a convoluted constitution that we're paying full-time lawyers to manage so that we can make sure that the power structures continue to kind of, again, fight over these issues in this way, right? Because this is about how it's done again, right? And and the system itself is so uh, minutely legalized at this point. uh, That it doesn't matter who you are, or how much you care about what's good, uh, your hands are tied in a lot yep. of ways. And it's it's kind of ugly. Anyway, I jumped in. Keep
1: going. Right? No, you're right. Be- and Because I, th- I think one of the difficulties that laymen might have with this is that the Missouri Synod is not, and I would imagine this would go for the Southern Baptist Convention and, and for Roman Catholic listeners and whatever. The Missouri Synod might have corporate-like structures, but it has its own culture, as any corporation does and it also doesn't exactly function just like a government bureaucracy or an oversized corporation or something so these are not just functions of these are not just functions of mismanagement because almost any theological debate or controversy will turn into a controversy over authority its proper exercise and how you talk about authorities in the LCMS so this is just this is something that if you go back into the history even recent history you will see again and again and again and again and the difficulty there is that it prevents us from being able to engage both the questioner but also the issue at hand Yo. so the issue at hand for instance for me with the question of gentrification is that i would like a forum in which i can publicly and i don't and i'm not saying this like I'll go get a Twitter account and I can see if John Nunez has a Twitter account and we can tweet at each other. I mean like a, a forum in which there are things that you would not say to my face, right? Or a forum in which you need to be clear rather than waiting for your followers to like what you're doing or whatever, right? What I'm saying is I think gentrification is – I think it's an anti-white euphemism because you don't – you can't openly say right now – that you just don't like when white people come into your neighborhood. Sometimes you can say that, but generally you can't say that.
0: It's time we start so, saying it to ourselves a little bit.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of this is internalized, which is why it's in the the catechism as such, this annotated large, large catechism, is symptomatic.
0: Mm-hmm. Amen. That's my whole argument. You just hit it right. It's, Thank it's
1: you. Symptomatic. Yep. Yep. It's symptomatic. It's not in and of itself the tumor. It's symptomatic of... We figured out a lot of other things, but the constant onslaught against God's created order, which gets reflected in the first article of the creed and in the 10 commandments as an entire part of the catechism that we don't, we haven't really figured out. And you and I have talked about that plenty and I've talked about it in other venues. That's not going to be surprising to the listeners, but that's the reason that the Publication is shaped the way it is, and the questions are what they are. And I, I would think that I, of all people, would be bulletproof on the question of, you know, I'm simply narrow minded. I don't want to read anybody that ever worshiped inside an ELCA church or something. I mean, I, a lot of the accusations against people online, but even, you know, I'm probably because I'm saying what I'm saying today, they come about. In a, in a way that is so reactively brittle, I want you to take their reactions, which you can see screenshots and you can, they're, they're so react, I mean, they're so angry, right? In response to questions, this is not the way that Christians should be when truth is, where truth is concerned, right? Where truth is concerned, the truth is more important than the way I feel. So if someone wants to come into my office and complain about something I did or said for 10 minutes, maybe I'm wrong, but I need, I should listen. I should at least consider. So if I think that somebody is wrong on Twitter, maybe mocking him, mocking his age, mocking what you assume to be his marital status, mocking his views, which he's gotten, not randomly, but out of generally being a white male in modern America and being punished for it in various institutional ways, yep. I don't really think that's productive. Nope. I, I don't similarly think it's productive to mock everyone on the other side of any given question. But see, I don't really see these as political divisions. I see them as spiritual divisions. Yeah, that then issues potentially in political divisions, but there's a spiritual division where we can just, you know, whatever produce whatever content that is sort of vaguely moderate gop type content on the commandments and then be like well what's the problem you you don't perceive that there's anything else going on can we get if we're going to talk about racism can we can we talk about all forms of just sheer dislike of other people for their race because in my own life i'm much more familiar with certain forms of that, than uh, anything that I was lectured against in public school. Mm-hmm. So these are these are these are things where I I want our pastors to behave as shepherds, mm-hmm. meaning that they're setting God's honor over other things, and not taking personally the fact that someone has a reservation or someone has a question. I mean, the laity are not in the pews because they're just supposed to shut up and listen to whatever you're doing. They're there because God has brought them there, and so that you can feed them with God's Word. That's the basic point of the holy ministry. So I, I I, want us to react that way in all circumstances, even with people whose lives and ways of expressing themselves or whatever we might find very strange.
0: So I had a conversation with my, um, my elder via video chat a few moments before we started recording. And he was asking about this issue because he's he's taken my advice and he's he's out of facebook and he's off twitter and he works as a forester so he's out in the woods with his dog and he's going and watching his kids play basketball and his life is a little slower than it was back when he was on uh what was it confessional lutheran fellowship management team uh on facebook <laughs> and yeah. uh yeah. <laughs> so so he's feeling pretty good about it. But but it got to the point where this issue made it through his his shields uh, and he learned about it. And he's thinking about, you know, the elders report for upcoming uh, council meeting and asking, you know, should we say anything about this? Does this matter? And, and my answer to him, and I'm going at this now strictly from like a congregational perspective here. I think this is the most important. What's real? Right. Where are you? Does this change next Sunday? or Sunday a year from now at your congregation, right? And the answer is no. In no way does this impact your congregation. This is So therefore, this is not a crisis. That's, that's like, so it's it's a symptomatic awareness that something's gone very wrong. And wow, it took this for you to wake up, did it now? Well, now welcome to the team. But But the tentacle of Cthulhu way over there in the corner is not his head. His head is what you got to worry about. This is a tentacle. This is just an edge of the entire thing. In any case so it doesn't impact the local congregation immediately it does give you something of a reason to ask an important question and that question is this is it time to leave the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that's an important question to ask I think the answer is no Uh, no no uh, no obviously not this is too small if you were gonna leave the LCMS over this you should have already left you should this should not be what lets you know that this is a problem don't be, you're surpri- you're surprised by this, by wokeism going on in an LCMS institution? What? Are you watching anything? Do you do you know that we are not special in any way as institutions? Do you know that the, the greed and the mammon hunger of the current modern zeitgeist has taken us too? It's why our congregations are so spiritually striving against each other for, again, legalizing the control over these institutions so we can try to really win and purify it from whatever view we think we're going to take. Is it time to leave the synod? No, this is not the final straw. Could that day come? Yes, that's what this question should drive you to. So if you want to take anything from this controversy, I, I said a lot, but just back it down again. Um, it doesn't impact where you are next Sunday. Is it time to leave the synod? No, but if you've never asked, will there come a time where you might need to? You need to ask that question now and honestly say, yeah, there could it could, it could get that bad. The institution could get that bad. Um, but it's not there yet. And so my elder said a really good thing. He said, he said, you know, well, you got to, you got to guard the turf you have. Well, I agree with that entirely, entirely. So, so is guarding the potential to salvage the LCMS, right? right? Is that going to occur through, um, fixing the footnotes in a scholastic work that no one's going to read anyway, or, is there some other kind of agendas we could really focus on that have a wider scope? I don't know. Things like that most people think Bible study is the portals of prayer. Right? Like that, right? Like, like maybe that could move us in a direction that created a more word-hungry people who then would notice when racism against them or others, let is just call it hate, uh, shows up against whole people. Yeah, they might notice that. Yeah, then,
1: right. Yeah, hate or partiality are Bible words. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: because because they're going to be formed by a, a a worldview that is God's mind, and His mind is going to be clear and direct, and they're going to smell the lie when it shows up. So I again I'm yeah I just think this is so classic LCMS where let's scream about the molehill. Uh, while behind us, you know, the raiders are coming down the you know, the precipice on us with bloodthirsty limbs hanging out of their mouths and ready to take over everything. And, and in that, then, again, I look at any of our LCMS universities, look at what is allowed to be taught, what goes on in the clubs. I know a couple of them are closed, but still, you know, what's going on with the woke agenda there? And then don't tell me that the notes and, and the essays in a small catechism are the problem.
1: We are, we are infested. I, I think- I think it was a lot of people's first or or maybe just second or something awareness of things that because of what you and I do for a living and the way that we do it, we were just more aware of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm being impatient with everybody. Oh, I want them oh, all to see what I see.
1: I mean, I, I went I, I went to a pastors conference. This is, this is seven years ago now when trump was first running so this is the spring of 2016 and john nunez was one of the speakers and he got up and told us that the only reason we got into the country was because our ancestors didn't have syphilis because they were checking for that at Ellis Island, and that's literally not even true for me but you know i mean i i knew this was around a long time ago but i think a lot of people weren't i also think this that the disturbance that it created for my people here was completely unnecessary. Yes. Um, At this congregation, we particularly encourage people to, and I make frequent reference in Bible class, for example, to the Lutheran confessions, We, we actually expect them to have read them, certainly our leadership particularly. So they're aware of the large catechism, they're looking at these things, and they're like, what is going on? Because they had they did not have an awareness of these things before because people's experience of the church is through their local congregation and they're not hearing this stuff at Trinity. So I think that this is for some people, this is their first awareness or this is a heightened awareness of a certain theological and cultural crisis that you and I have been cognizant of for a long time. And that to me is unnecessary partly because the large catechism I mean, I read it to my kids, Luther's Large Catechism, and they understand it. Mm. So it's pretty good stuff. Yeah, they don't need. It's not hard to understand. It's colloquial. They don't need. I read it in German, obviously. Now, if anyone's in um, but, and
0: listening, can you just get us like a nice pocket edition, leather bound, large catechism only, no other text you know you can put a nice picture in the leather emboss or whatever and make it yeah. pretty and let me put it in my pocket and take it with me places and i don't have to carry the whole book of concord everywhere and i don't have to use this crappy paperback from 1980 like like do something like that right as opposed to some tome uh which again this thing's a tome that they're putting but,
1: on. yeah i i think that for a lot of people it was just their first awareness yeah. and that's what was so so shocking and 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 so also they are like well why do i why do I need this? And the answer is you don't need it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because otherwise I think it would, I think you're right. If it really hadn't popped up on Twitter, it would have just, people would have had some vague awareness that it exists and then it would have gone away.
0: Do you remember the controversy over the Concordia, the Lutheran confessions release?
1: Yeah. Where Paul McCain's notes, I think were set with the same, you know, Typeface and kerning and stuff as the text of the Book of Concord, and so that had to be fixed. I believe
0: there, there was also that. That is that is the top of the story, right? The bottom of the story uh, is that somewhere in in I believe this large catechism, but it might be small called, um, there is some textual criticism that can be done to make it look like uh, Allah uh, and and Jesus are kind of the same God. And McCain's uh, went with a, a less reliable text, I guess, but it made it clear yes. that, that is not the pot, not the case, right? And this is right around Yankee Stadium too. A whole same controversy, right? Are we worshiping the same God or not? And uh, and uh, and so that that is the same event for me, kind of emotionally, because the, the end result was less people looked at the Book of Concord as a result. That was the end result. And the end result of this is going to be less people are going to look at the large catechism. They're going to they're going to look at the controversy. They're going to throw their hands up. They're going to say, "Ah, oh, golly, I don't know." Uh.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was large catechism, section two, paragraph sixty six. Yeah, and that that section was controverted because you have different sort of like scripture. You have different. You have many fewer, but still differing texts of the Book of Concord, and that has to be reconciled through textual criticism. Mm-hmm. You're right that the ultimate problem that is created is confusion and dismay. I'm not actually worried about the zealous young guys on Twitter. I'm not worried about the pastors who are reacting to them in snarky ways. They will each find their own way and God will see them there. I'm more worried about people who, when they hear of any controversy of any kind, throw their hands up in dismay because when that happens when the trumpet gives an uncertain sound then Israel doesn't know to gather to the trumpet right. so they don't know where the battle is happening they don't know how to conduct themselves and they don't know how to how to go forward without fear my concern is that when we're producing stuff for the church that you can leave things that are sort of speculative investigations of you know contemporary political application of the ninth commandment to a fortress press publication, <laughs> and then and then, I can be like one of three people in the Missouri Senate that's ever read it, right? That's fine with me. When you're producing things for the church, they need to be bulletproof and edifying, not just maybe or, wow, I know this guy, and in the case of the table of contents, I want to say I know like 90, 95% of these people, like I've met them. Right. I, I I'm not surprised by anything that that I've read. <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> at all right at all. you know right. I mean the the Bierman thing on the fifth committee Bierman has been pushing Stanley Howardwass, who you need to look into if you want to understand Bierman since before his dissertation. I mean it's it's a long time. So none of this is really surprising if you know these people, but is that the purpose of a publication of the church is to provide interesting material of somewhat indifferent quality? No, it's not, and the idea that that's it, it's fine and you're just overreacting, I think is it, it it simply doesn't understand what the church is for. The church is not an academic discussion society. The church promulgates God's teaching for the salvation of the world. yeah, that's has, the goal.
0: what has Athens to do at Jerusalem? And I know there's a context to that, but but there's a little bit of that going on here, yeah, a little bit of that going on. So we got another question. Uh, Another good one, I think. And let's see. It is from our own Frisbee, if I'm not mistaken. And Mm -hmm. she says, I was thinking about the idea that history is mined in the hopes of finding a silver bullet for fixing present situations. Mentioned a couple of times on BHOP recently. Do you think that might be a special American habit? I may not be observing correctly, but I don't find Australians do that so much. Other Aussies here are welcome to contest that. Uh, Some of that may be that they just don't even read history. They're so steeped in their own day-to-day, they don't contemplate it. My parents and grandparents were very much of the mindset that it is what it is on that front. Nothing new under the sun. There are brighter times and darker times, and we don't have a lot of sway over that. Maybe they were just pessimists in that Um, vein—sorry, maybe they were just pessimists in that vein— Is aforementioned mining of history a modern thing? And do you think it is related to pragmatism? That's interesting. Uh, Which seems a particularly American contribution to the philosophical
1: world. Let me just take the the very last thing first because it's kind of smallest and most arcane. And there's more discussion to be had in her earlier questions. Pragmatism with a capital P is an American philosophical school. That comes out of the late 19th century, particularly in New England, and is not necessarily a philosophy of history. It is instead a philosophy of knowledge as well as of ethics. So, how do I verify what is true or worthwhile? It will be through practice. That is peculiarly American, but it is not in and of itself the reason that Americans might want to find silver bullets in history. They may or may not, we as a group may or may not be inclined to pragmatism with a lowercase P, so not a philosophical stance, but sort of, I'm going to do what works. (laughs) But we're we're not entirely alone in that. And the pragmatists, uppercase P, just don't have enough sway over our schools of thought. So in theology, for example, there is a school called process theology that is very closely related to pragmatism. I would say even requires pragmatism as it's sort of theological or philosophical substructure. Process theology is just not big enough to have influenced us all. So as a a school of thought, I find it very interesting, but it's not It's not going to get you all the way there as an answer to the other questions, which I think are significant. And they do have to do with something, at least historically about Americans, that is related to, for our part, Frederick Jackson Turner, who wrote about Americans' self-understanding near the end of the 19th century, talked about the necessity of a frontier for americans because when you have a frontier situation of some kind and notice that we'll even give frontier as a sort of metaphorical name to various places that are either all, are already settled or aren't even territory right or
0: really bad airlines <laughs>
1: Once headquartered when it was independent in Denver, Colorado.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a fly frontier. It is. It is a little bit like um, exploring.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I mean, we've got Alaska as the last frontier, but we've also got the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We've got a lot of frontiers in the United States of America. The thing about a frontier is that when something is unsettled, either in the sense of not having people there, or we might say up in the still up in the air, undetermined, then you can be an optimist and you can exercise the agency that you do have. And that produces a desire to find solutions. This is this would be our lowercase p pragmatism, which is all over the place for sure. okay, that you wouldn't if things were more settled or decided. So you might think that Australia would actually resemble us because they are actually a more recent, colonial society but australia relative to us is highly urbanized i mean new jersey levels of density highly urbanized and not did not actually have the same mass experience of frontier settlement that basically all americans did moving westward up to about the end of the 19th century So that creates a a different mindset in people that you do still find. Now, there are lots of layers of pessimism involved, I think, especially in our past 40 or 50 years of drug addiction and evils coming from the internet and lots of other things that have tamped that down. And societies change over time. America is obviously getting older as a society as we speak not just demographically, but historically. So that changes your perspective on things. But I think it's the relationship to the frontier that makes Americans more willing to go try to find silver bullets to problems. Because underneath the desire to find the silver bullet is the conviction, which is unquestioned, that if you found it, you would be able to use it successfully. And that is indeed not every society's conviction about itself. So it's it's also, I mean, you can see this in different surveys, but this is why, you know, many Americans will tell you that not only do they feel like they're middle class, but also that they will be better off than their parents. As those things evaporate, I think you will see a change and more Americans will become more fatalistic. As in her question, she said, you know, this is the way Aussies are. It is the way it is. I think fatalism creeps in to a society as it ages in a way that is unhealthy. So uh, you might say, well, you know, there are different ways to get older. And so you could be 75 and getting up and exercising and, and feeling pretty great for 75. Or you could say, well, I'm going to die soon, you know, and just sort of take life as it smacks you in the face. Those are very different reactions to being precisely the same age. So I do not want to see the United States... Even as we get older, and I'm from one of the oldest parts of the United States, but as we get older as a society, more history under our belt, as it were, I don't want to see us decline in function to the point where we become utterly fatalistic about things. Because it's that it's that fatal it's that fatalism that I think also drives the desire to be taken care of by the government. So you, the tyranny will increase the less I feel that I have any control over my own life because somebody else will hold the capacity to control my life. Yeah, isn't
0: fatalism sort of a mental slavery at its most pure level? And so mm-hmm. you know once you've adopted that fatalistic point of view, you are a slave to wherever you are uh yeah. by definition. Um unto death, might I add. That's the word right. fatal the fatal is a nice kind of ring That's to it. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: um she had a question about whether this is a modern impulse. Oh sure yeah. You could go, go for find civil bullet and that that question is pretty easy to answer it's just it's just deep it's a lot that you can look into is that you will find that the purpose of history for the ancients is both to delight as any story does any story well told delights but it's also to teach so history is never related sheerly for the delight of the story it is related so that you can learn something that you can also yourself use. So this is not at all a modern impulse. I think a modern version of this, which is bad in its way, is the superficiality induced by the internet, induced by consumption of information through purely digital means where your eye only wants to scan so much and your attention span only lasts so long, your, your mining will therefore be all that more superficial. So you did, you did dig beneath the surface, or in internet parlance, you went down the rabbit hole. But in the whole scheme of things, that wasn't really that deep. So your conclusions also were somewhat shallow and somewhat hasty. And that's the thing that I think is a particularly modern danger because of the nature of our information consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, not being largely analog, so if you are going to do this, I would recommend analog over everything else.
0: What? Speaking <laughs> my language. Speaking <laughs> so, my language. Yeah. Um. So I got a. I got just got a little take on the the mining of history uh, thing, okay. and it's maybe a little more yeah. from the uh, uh, what do you call it, the peanut gallery? But you know, the the who, you know this. I know you know who said. You know, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it.
1: Do you know that? Uh, various people. George Santayana, I think most famously. Who's
0: the like the, who who coined this concept? Right. Because it, it gets repeated by everyone all the way down to like, you know, someone with no high school education. They, they might know that phrase. It's that sort of colloquial, I think. Um, and then you have the, the more the more nuanced kind of internet podcaster understands that the history doesn't really repeat itself, but, but maybe it rhymes, right? And so in, in looking at history, what I'm after is for this sort of like, well, framework um, design uh, that I can see in it that ideally I'll be able to kind of like live my future better because of. And I don't think that, that this is wrong, ultimately, but like you yeah. kind of pointed out, we go at it with kind of, you know, ham-fistedly, right? You're using your fists, you should right. be using your fingers. Um, and I think the first place to start then is to recognize that uh, history does, does not repeat, right? Um, rather, what, what history does is it shows you what could be. It shows you what could be. What it doesn't do is it doesn't show you what could not be. But by knowing what could be, you gradually are going to gain what the Bible calls wisdom, which is the ability to foresee potential. Yeah. So if you've read a lot about what happened, you know a lot of what could be, and so you are going to be equipped to foresee potential things that could be where you are, but they're never going to really be just like these massive, well, just like Rome, U.S. did it exactly the same way, and you can line right. up all these points. Like like you're trying to, to play Stratego. Stop it, right? Um, instead, uh, you know, seek for wisdom because— as you pointed out, you know, the ancients understood that stories teach wisdom and for the ancients, there really wasn't a distinction between history and story to be sure. Mythology is kind of a a weird genre in that way, but it it is also out of what was their religion, right? Yeah. It's intertwined. It's
1: it's intertwined for them the way that I analyze American history in biblical terms. Yeah. (laughs) It's completely intertwined. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, to why we're looking for the silver bullet. I I, I think your answer on frontier thinking is f- super fascinating. And anybody who wants to go do like get a doctorate, can probably take that thesis and like run. Um, uh, but to me, it's more about why are they, wh- what's the point of looking for the silver bullet here? What are we trying to do? Right. Why am I reading history? Am I trying to find a child's understanding of the future? Because I'm going to fail. It's not going to work. Um, But if instead I look to be exposed to uh, just how little I have any control of the future, Um, but to maybe not be as surprised as I would have been if I hadn't read some history. Like if I spend my whole life reading dystopic romance junior fiction novels, right? i am be surprised by real life a lot. It's going to surprise me all the time. If I read a lot of history, I'm probably not going to be as surprised. And then I can react, which is kind of the key.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if you want to... Take the metaphor and and stretch it a little bit. Using history is not the discovery of silver bullets. Like there's like a treasure chest locked up and then you're going to find them. And it'll be the right caliber for your weapon. And you can just fire away and you're good to go. It is maybe reloading. So you can use shells, but you need to actually make it something that can be fired and, you know, kill somebody again. If that's what you're looking to do. Or you need to, you know, produce your own ammo altogether from scratch. Now, the ingredients for either reloading or new production are going to come from history. Because you're getting you're getting wisdom that is already digested and understood. This is how Albert J. Nock talks about why in his memoirs, Memoirs of a Superfluous Man, why the almost unsupervised Classical education he received, especially in college, was so fantastic because this civilization, this if you want to, Greco-Roman civilization already existed. <laughs> it's gone. Christendom, of all things, changed it into something else. But we inherited it, but it lasted so long that I can see what happens to a people's morals. I can see what happens to a people's artistic expression. I can see what happens... The same military technology under very different commanders, or the same sorts of commanders with vastly different technology at their behest. All of those things I can see because I have so much sitting in front of me. So I don't have to be a moral dwarf or an intellectual child in things where examples are available aplenty. And and that's the point. Not that I'm going to find the silver bullet while I'm reading Tacitus. But that as I think about what he has related, I can begin to understand what lies in front of me. And people still do this. People have always done this. There were men in Vietnam, who, officers who were reading Tacitus and understood that we were in basically the same situation that the Romans were when they went into the German forest and found themselves utterly lost in a hostile foreign place. And so, of course, you are going to end up in what came to be called a quagmire because you are far from home and have a little support for what you're doing. None of that was really necessarily a matter of prophecy so much as a matter of foresight and before that a matter of insight and the insight you gained from gaining the wisdom, reading the wisdom, appropriating the wisdom of previous generations. It's also why when we get like the controversy that we talked about at the front end of the episode. It's hard for me to, I'm I i I'm not as good at being a a fireman as I used to be because I feel like there are very often false alarms or the building has been burning for a long time and everyone else was asleep. And now we realize the building was burning. And so some people are, trying to put the fire out, and some people are passionately denouncing the idea that there is a fire, Uh, and some people want to talk about whether there might be possibly a fire. Do you have authority to carry that bucket? (laughs) Right. And then most of us probably are talking about who's allowed to carry the red buckets and who carries the yellow buckets or something, you know? Yeah, that's a good point, right? So, But the study of history is going to induce... A certain amount, not of sleepiness, but of, relatively speaking, calm. Now, I would say this especially happens with the books of biblical history, okay? So those more than any other kind of history, but history generally does this, is that it makes you, and I'm paraphrasing here August Pieper, he was talking about being strict or being open, and that the scriptures make you as strict as you need to be and as open as you need to be. That the same thing happens, particularly when you evaluate history, because whatever is your natural reflex, whether you are naturally fatalistic or naturally optimistic or naturally pessimistic, or a lot of people theorize, at least privately to me, that the Missouri Synod is always looking for a furor, basically, and it's it's not just sort of like an ethnic joke. They actually believe that's sort of like their political theory of the misery synod, is that you see that you 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 come to have a much greater sense of what you actually have control over and what you don't. Because the delusion that the ungodly labor under is that they are or should be in control of everything. Always. That's why they proclaim themselves gods in the scriptures. Whereas a believer understands the things that he's responsible for. So that's why I talked about shepherds and pastors earlier, because I don't think that we're reacting to our own people very pastorally. Yeah. But also, you know, maybe maybe we're all Josiah and this is all going to go away soon. I don't have control over that. And so I also don't worry about it in that sense. Like I don't wake up and think, is X or Y or Z institution going to survive? There's a sense in which it doesn't matter because God will do what is good for his people. I know that. And that induces a certain calm or stillness of soul that we sing about in hymns that many of my friends don't actually like to sing in their churches, but our people usually like to sing. (laughs) To say that it is well with their soul. And you can say that when you have been given a sense of peace that does pass understanding. And it's the absence of that that I think is part of the cancer of which this most recent controversy is just a single symptom.
0: Lack of calm and peace. Um. Let's see. Hold on. You had lots of good stuff in there. Uh... <laughs> history making you more of what you need to be. I like that uh because it it depends on what you're reading again. Like you you can read really yeah. bad history. It's it's possible, right? there's there's, <laughs> right. there's poorly written stuff out there. Um but the idea is that it really doesn't matter if you're reading about, you know, uh sedentary life in the 1400s and just the details of the stonework of the masons that made the, the you know, the thatch roof cottages or whatever. Or whether yeah. you're reading, you know, Caesar's memoirs, the true knowledge you find from this outside of your experience in world. I mean, don't think read the history of, you know, Trump or whatever, right? We're talking about this is men from another era. Their experience is going to meet your experience and gonna compel you to face a more true reality. Lies do the opposite of this, which again is where a bad history is gonna not help you here. But reading good history is going to edge you in a direction that you wouldn't look to edge yourself. And that's that's where its gift is. And you point out, Dr. Kuntz, uh, you know, of course, uh, the biblical texts are the meat here. And uh, anything else you would add to this is a little bit more like a, a nice, nice salad on the side. It might, you know, you can lick your chops or change the flavor a little bit. But it's not yeah. exactly going to, you know, put muscle on your bones. So... You know, but it's there, and it's 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 good too. Um, but then uh, the result of this being more of what you need to be, as as opposed to being in control of everything around you, like you're mentioning, you know, these other guys. The main thing is learning to control your own, your own flesh. Frankly, uh, that that man you have within you as a Christian that isn't who you want to be, um, and you do that by knowing who he really is. And you find that in the faces of men of old, and, and who they are, um, not in Peter Pan. Peter Pan's not going to tell you who you are, right? Um, Caesar, you know, Tacitus, you got to figure out who you are to even talk to those guys. Yeah. And, and that's, again, I think uh, history has tremendous value there, uh, if anyone's going to read anything at all, um, which, again, remains to be seen. Can we even print stuff 30 years from now, Dr. Goose? Well, paper still exists.
1: That's my question for you. Yeah, I sure hope so. I did. Tell me about it. six
0: <laughs> by four note cards, man. I, I don't know. I, I feel like stockpiling them just in case. Uh, yeah. They're they're gonna be gold at some point. Well, we we used most of our time here. We got a few moments. You can certainly respond to what I just said, or or we can kind of paint a preview. I don't want to dig too deeply into. Yeah, uh,
1: I where don't We're gonna either. go
0: next because I want the first official episode to be, uh, you know, out of the gun. I think a little more. Um, but once you start painting that picture a little bit for us, where are we going?
1: Yeah, the place that we're going is due to a a thought I've had for a long time, a very long time, and a discussion that I had very recently. So for a very long time, it has seemed to me that that my church does not understand my country and that this holds my church back from reaching the potential that it should in the proclamation of the truth that it has. Very recently, I was having a discussion with Pastor David Ramirez, and he he said, "You are one of the real Americans. You should do something where you like explain to people why America is the way it is." <laughs> and I think Pastor Ramirez doesn't listen to the podcast. It's like, come on, dude! Which is fine. I didn't. What? I wasn't like. I, I I may or may not have done hundreds of hours that David. I, I just laughed. Yeah, yeah. I just moved on.
0: As it, it makes it, it pushes me back to some Russell Crowe I'm not a movie fan, you know this, right? But like Russell yeah. Crowe Gladiator, are you not entertained? Like like what more do I need to do for you?
1: <laughs> but no, but that's fine. But it what it what it helped me to do was to create a series that'll be staggered throughout the rest of the year. So we'll come in and out of it as as events, occasion. That will be a theological history of America, including especially explaining the shape of American Christianity so that Lutherans have a better understanding of it and not in not in a necessarily polemical way. And the reason not to understand it in a polemical way is because I think if you're going to do something effectively, you have to take time, even if you absolutely despise it, simply to understand it. And we usually jump immediately to sort of very personalized, jargonized questions to evaluate other people or historical events or theological movements in the United States of America. And that prevents us from understanding what it is that is actually occurring in front of us or being said to us or by us or about us. So it's that growth and understanding that I want to foster. And if you're not an American and or you don't live in the United States, then Hopefully the framework will be helpful for you to do something like this, where starting from before European settlement in the United in what becomes the United States, we'll trace a mixture of both theologies that are current or or nascent or on the decline. So on the decline in 2023 would be liberal Protestantism, for example. But We will also trace the religious practices that did or didn't line up with those that are then reflected. So we're not going to trace everything that's ever happened. So I'm not going to talk about snake handling churches in West Virginia, but I will talk about the singing of hymns by civil war units on both sides and how and why that was done. The reason being, I simply want people, but especially my own church people to understand this nation better so that we can be more effective in proclamation in this nation. I said unnecessary disturbance earlier. Another f- word I could have used for the things that I am thinking about relative to the large catechism controversy is distraction. What I really hope for, and we're beginning to get there, honestly, so this is not me griping, I would just love to see about 25 times more of it, is people emailing me not just about controversies, theological controversies, and things that are confusing or distressing to the people of God, things that are burdening their conscience, where their conscience should not be burdened for moving to a suburb or, heaven forbid, moving back into the neighborhood their great-grandparents lived in. It would be wonderful if there would be way, 25 times less of that and 25 times more of somebody saying, I live in a county that has 340,000 people and we have no LCMS church. Can you help me? That's what I would absolutely, just absolutely love because I think that's actually what the church is supposed to be doing. So the series is intended to help us do that ultimately by helping us understand what we're looking at and what we're dealing with and and some tools that you can use to understand what things are like where you are and and why they are that way. So why do you have these three legacy buildings in your town but everybody goes to this, you know, church that is called like Journey Church and meets inside a pole building outside of town? Why is it like that? Things like that that I hope will be helpful to you so that you can understand where it is that you live and therefore how also to speak the truth of Christ and concerning Christ where you live. That's my ultimate goal of everything that I do is the promotion of Christ's teaching and, and Christ's gospel. So that's where we're gonna go. We're gonna again begin before European settlement with the nature of the religions practiced by the American Indians particularly those on the East Coast, obviously, because that's going to be your first contact. And also how they processed what European settlement, what white settlement meant. And that'll help us get into, beginning with the New England Puritans, how they understood what it was that they were doing here. So a lot of this is going to be fairly foreign to a lot of listeners, I think, because we're not, I'm not going to offer like a, a thorough... Lutheran critique of everything that's happening. I'm just gonna tell you that the Jesuits were unusual <laughs> that they were unusually active in Maryland or that, but, but you the know. Jesuits mat-
0: justification, Dr. Coons, You gotta talk about they, it.
1: Indeed, they do. I <laughs> uh, and and I I will stand no Jesuit tricks. But um <laughs> on great. the other hand, on the other hand, uh I do want to understand what they're doing. So uh, yeah. that's that's what we're gonna do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotta gotta Fight dark kung fu with light kung fu or something like that. Can I have your opinion on F.E. Myers, The Religious Bodies of America and how that will or does interchange with what we're going to talk about?
1: F.E. Mayer's Religious Bodies of America used to be absolutely de rigueur, absolutely required reading for Lutheran pastors at both seminaries. Mm-hmm. It is no longer, so far as I know, and I find that profitable partly because I do not see other Christians as really the main competition for hmm. the proclamation of the Lutheran Church in modern America. If someone comes from a Baptist church, and I need to explain, so it's going to be important if they're from the ABC USA, those used to be the Northern Baptist or the Southern Baptist Convention, That those are two very different kind of Baptists, generally speaking. Yeah. I need to know that. So room for what used to be called comparative symbolics still needs to be there and is very helpful. Generally, however, the children of the church, of any church, don't drift into another kind of church. They drift into a godlessness that takes various guises. So I'm interested in the growth of that more than I am in the precise reasons that the American Baptist Churches USA are the way they are and where their seminaries were and who their leading theological figures have been. As helpful as that is, and as we will be covering some of that, because America's history is overwhelmingly Christian and perhaps even overwhelmingly Protestant Christian, so understanding of those permutations is important but in the present day it's a little less important often than explaining to somebody why he should be a christian at all
0: right right so it's a magisterial work but the time for it is really past uh and we're in a different different game set here but um yeah yeah okay what about um i don't know have this author's name but i'm pretty sure you'll know it uh, the churching of america you familiar with that one
1: that is if I remember correctly, that is a that is a book about early America and how, relatively speaking, unchurched it was. Is that right? Is it, that what you're not thinking Not entirely,
0: of? but what it does is it just tracks the the actual kind of growth of congregational demographics, right. Over the course of a couple hundred years, and I, I found it to be fascinating, both in terms of uh, kind of counteracting this. There were no, we're not a Christian nation. Like there was no, no. There's a whole lot of Christianity going on right. here, but at the same time, but look, there's this is here and this is here too, and then there's these times where everyone kind of that's thinks right. of it as strong, but it really wasn't that strong. Stuff like that.
1: There's, yeah, no, that's a, it's a, it's helpful because it it also explains a dynamic that I, I this is hard, very often for Lutherans to understand Catholics other churches where the nature of belonging is very intense. So if you belong to a church where if you move to a different part of the country, you would look for a church exactly like the church that you just came from, maybe on a brand level, if you want to think about denominations that way, then you probably have trouble understanding this basic reality of Anglo-American Protestantism, which is that the label doesn't matter nearly as much as you think it should. Mm-hmm. And the nature of membership or belonging to a church is not nearly so formal as it should be. I mean, i'm I'm not doing this to say it was all great. All Lutherans need to be entirely more American in the ways that I'll outline. But the nature of membership was never as intense, I think, biblically as it needed to be for many churches. So your rates of church membership throughout American history are pretty low relative to the amount of Christianity involved in people's lives. People are living Christian lives more on their own historically than with a specific church or church denomination.
0: Christendom is still a thing. Right and and
1: Christendom is a thing, yeah. It's just not shaped the same way in America that it was in right. I don't know, you know, Brandenburg or something.
0: Right, right, yeah. And, and to swing this just kind of back again to our, our opening yeah. question, but not really. Um, the sooner all of us, I don't care if you're Lutheran or not, but uh, yeah, Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod members and, and pastors the sooner all of us realize that what we're reckoning with is a outward collapse of the shell that was Christendom and it's God's judgment against like wicked things. <laughs> like the better off we're going to be in just being okay with being the remnant and then asking, you know, how do we circle these wagons in a godly way, which isn't going to be by shouting about who gets to carry the water in which bucket, but it's going to be about trying to shed light. And like Dr. Kuhn said, some calm. Uh, on every situation right uh and um so yeah i look i look forward to this and i and i really look forward to uh learning from you because uh, i i i am gonna back this up i think that i speak american all right right i, I don't think i'm terrible at it um and i'm kind of like an outsider insider within the lcms and always do feel a little bit like a black sheep which is fine but i know that you have especially with the east coast kind of uh Mindset you have and then the very limited amount of televising, uh, imbibing that you have. Um, I really look forward to letting you form the way I look at conversations with my neighbors who are, you know, Americans, uh, but are not like me in a lot of different ways. uh, Because I am in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, because I am a Lutheran, because I am German, right, Um, Norse. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I think it's so important for where I am as a pastor it's constantly on my mind uh, where where I sit um, behind the pulpit and there's a little chair there for me and there's a window that is built to let light shine on the cross and I can see out it no one else can see out it I can see out it so during the sermon hymn every week I'm sitting there and I'm just watching I can see the stoplight that's at the crossroads and I'm just watching the cars just watching just going by, going by and, I, and in my head and I know my flesh is involved in this a little bit but in my head uh, the question is always like you know, what could I do? To get the guy in that car to think about coming here Um, and it's a stupid question in one sense because the guy in the car is gonna drive away but it's a good question in another sense there are so many people right here right around us and uh, well I'm looking forward to you teaching me how to how to talk to them Um, as Jesus Christ lives you're listening to a brief history of power you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here the Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford Illinois Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegian.com
1: What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find... God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 1030. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, Wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful Inland Northwest.